Aon and HPC did a report in early careers. It was published uh, late last year. And the findings were that employers cited their number one challenge was retention. And actually retention begins with onboarding. If you want to retain talent, you must onboard them in the right way. So that's why we invest so much anyways in our onboarding, because it sets people up for success. But I think sometimes when people progress in their career, and I know we're talking about early talent here today, but when people progress in their career, they still need that onboarding element. Hi, I'm John Fitzgerald, and your host on The Card Podcast. I'm curious about what's changing in the world of work. The conversations we have with our guests always bring in personal stories and unique perspectives for us all to learn from. Hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Cord Podcast. Our topic today is onboarding a new generation for the now of work. And I'm delighted to be joined by Sinead Darcy. Sinead leads the multi-award winning Jemison International Graduate Program for the past 11 years. And Sinead has a passion for talent development, early careers, talent, and a keen interest in the future of work. So I think we're going to have a really energizing conversation today. Also, Sinead's keen interest in employer branding, the role employer value proposition plays in attracting and retaining talent and obviously focusing on the multi-generational workforce and the younger generation coming in to the workforce. So as we always do on the podcast, uh, Sinead, can you tell us a little bit about your younger formative influences and values that you believed you gained from your upbringing? So for myself, I suppose I've been very fortunate that I've had some great teachers some great mentors, some great managers, some great coaches along the way in my career to date. And they've taught me a lot. And I suppose when I look back to maybe my formative years, as you say, you know, I have a very close family unit and we're all very hardworking. I learned a lot about, you know, honesty and respect growing up uh, from my parents and from my grandparents. I was very lucky that when I was growing up, all four of my grandparents were around and the eldest of a family of three. So I got to spend time with them and I really felt like I learned a lot from them about that hard work, that honesty, that respect. And actually, my grandmothers lived until they were 102 and 89. They both passed away now. And my grandfathers passed away um, a number of years ago. From my grandmothers, I really feel like I learned, I think, to be present in the now and to be content. They were very content women. And they were an absolute joy to be around. And they really lived in the now. And my granny, when she turned 100, we asked her, did she have some advice on, you know, how she's led such a happy life? Because she was a very happy and content lady. Um, And she said, I just take every day as it comes. And I think that's great advice for anybody. And that's the advice that I suppose I live by. Um, That if I'm feeling a little bit stressed or anxious about anything, I always just think, look, let's just take it one step at a time. And let's just take today as today and see what tomorrow brings. That's uh, mindfulness uh, from 100 years ago, really, in another way. Take every day as it comes. But what wise advice. So progressing in your career then, Sinead, you started life as a teacher and progressed into the corporate world. So tell us about that journey in a snapshot. Yeah, so look, I've had a really wonderful career to date and I still look forward to the next career adventures ahead as well. It's by no means um, over yet, it's still just starting. But it did start as a a teacher. So I um, always knew from a very early age what I wanted to be. Actually, I remember very vividly my first day at school and the teacher asked me on that first day, what did I want to be when I grow up? And I very clearly told her I wanted to be a teacher. So I always knew 
pop my bullseye was from a very early age. Um, and that was that I wanted to be a teacher. And that's because I'm a very creative person. I love storytelling. And a lot of the things that I knew I liked from a very early age, I knew teaching was a profession that could fulfill, you know, my ambitions and what I was passionate about. But I suppose at that early age, I didn't know that, you know, to help people be the best they could be, to teach people, you didn't have to be a teacher. You know, uh, there was lots of other careers that you could uh, go into, but I was only familiar with at that time, the career of teaching. So very happily became a primary school teacher. I taught for four years. I absolutely loved teaching. But I suppose then when I started to think about my longer term career progression within the profession, I really felt like I didn't want to be a principal or a vice principal or an inspector. So I didn't really see that long term career progression for me. So after four years, I went off to Australia to find myself, as uh, many people still do today. Um, and I worked in different sectors over there. I worked in banking and a lot in hospitality, as you do when you're traveling. And it opened my eyes up to a whole new world of opportunities and a whole new world of career progression opportunities. So I felt like I needed to reskill at that point. So I came back to Ireland and I did a master's in management in UCD in Smurfit full time. So it was amazing to immerse myself back into learning for a full year. I really appreciated that. And then I went into the private sector for the first time. So I kind of felt like I'd been in the classroom all my life. I'd been a student in primary school, secondary school, a student in college, and then I'd been a teacher. So I was back in the classroom. And after Smurf, it was really the first time when I felt like, wow, I'm really now learning about, you know, the world of work. Um, and the private sector, you know, offered me a lot. I worked in um, tel telecoms, telco. I worked in banking and now I work in FMCG. Um, and for a little bit in the middle of all of that, I actually went back to the public sector, to UCD, and I lectured there and I managed a, a programme in the Centre for Distance Learning in UCD in the business school there as well. So look, my career progression, it's had a lot of twists and turns. It's been very interesting. I've loved every minute of it. It's a good balance of private and public sector. And I really believe in lifelong learning. So I've done lots of little courses along the way. I'm a qualified executive coach, things like that. and qualified in university teaching and learning as well. So I really believe in the power of lifelong learning. But I suppose the red thread that has linked all those experiences together has really been around my passion for people and people development and helping people to thrive, unlock their full potential. So that's what brought you to where you are today in your role. So tell us about your role and how that fits into the overall strategic agenda for Irish distillers. Yeah, so I've worked in, I suppose, early careers for, gosh, uh, scary to say it out loud, but about 20 years now across telco banking and FMCG. And I've watched, you know, two generations move through the workplace and getting ready for a third now. Generation Alpha are about to join us in 2030, so not far off. But I suppose my current role with Irish Distillers as head of the Jemison International Brand Ambassador Programme is around looking for talent that want to kickstart a career in marketing uh, on international stage, working for an iconic Irish brand. So our brand ambassadors placed in 45 markets all around the world. We have a, a global community of over 70 at the moment. And their role is really to grow brand awareness and brand love for Jemison. So they are little entrepreneurs out in their markets, building the brand. And of course, every market's different. Some markets are seed markets for Jemison, where they really are starting off at grassroots level. And then other markets are more advanced for Jemison and awareness of the brand and engagement with the brand will be a lot higher with consumers. So really the role that we're looking to hire for, there is no one size fits all because every market is so different. So what we say in terms of what we're looking for is people who are quite creative, quite innovative, and that they are self-starters. And when you package all that together, it's people with an entrepreneurial mindset. 
that we're really looking for. And of course, that talent, early talent, they then become the future leaders of our business. So that's the big part of our people agenda that the program is a pipeline for those future leaders. So in the short term, of course, it builds our brand on an international scale and feeds that global ambition for Jemison. But then longer term, it feeds the pipeline of talent for future leaders within our business domestically and globally. So we have about 500, over 500 graduates who've been through the program in its 33 years. It was established in 1991 and we have 14% retention over that time. And our alumni are spread across 25 markets, which is crazy. Like they really are a global community, a global family, even today in a great global network for current graduates to tap into that alumni network. So yeah, what we're doing is building the brand to fulfill the global ambitions for Jemison. But then longer term, it's that talent play and that pipeline of talent. So how many do you source each year? And you specifically, because you're in marketing, you call them brand ambassadors rather than graduates. So just talk to me about how that evolved and happened. Yeah, so you've touched on something really interesting there, which is that myself and my team actually sit in marketing. Okay, so I do have a background in HR. And when I worked in uh, early careers and graduate recruitment in, in telco and banking, then I did sit in HR. But actually what I loved when I applied for this job in Irish distillers is that the job was sitting in, in international marketing. So it was sitting in the function of the business where I was hiring and developing talent for that specific function. And when you look at best practice in HR, it does say that you know HR professionals should sit within the functions of the business that they are actually managing or supporting. So I loved that theory that I'd read about in college. I could actually do it in reality and actually sit in international marketing. And of course, it fed my uh, creative spirit because I was in marketing. So what we have done, myself and my team, we have actually built the program around marketing ethos, as opposed to a lot of recruitment around early careers and early talent is around more a talent acquisition kind of approach. We've taken a kind of a consumer branding approach, I suppose you might call it. So how you would build the Jemison brand itself, the tools you would use like PR, paid media, of course, we have campus engagement, the traditional elements of graduate recruitment, campus engagement, working with societies, etc. But the other elements, paid media, really looking at our website and how that becomes an engagement platform, looking at our social channels and how we engage with the new generation, the Gen Z, on our social channels, because that's where they're hanging out. They're not hanging out on job boards. Uh, they're hanging out on social. So I have loved that what we have done has allowed us to take a marketing approach where we can actually leverage all those marketing assets to attract the next generation. It's been a lot of fun and it's allowed me, I suppose, personally to really tap into my super strengths and the things that I'm passionate about, which is getting the right people, the right fit for a company, helping those people to thrive within their role and then doing that in a way that's creative and a lot of fun. So I'm sitting here with my, you know, HR hat and I'm trying to find grads and you mentioned little entrepreneurs there. And I think what everybody wants in organizations today are self-starters and people who will be creative and innovative and agile and all of those buzzwords. So bring me then to you talk about not jobs boards. Where do you find them on social? Where are they hanging out? And what are they conversing with and how do you get into their stream of consciousness and back to branding and positioning for yourself? How do you get connected to them in their world? Yeah, so the profiles we are looking for are very unique profiles. You know, they're going out all around the world to start a career in marketing, working for, like I said, an iconic Irish brand. Like we're looking for people who speak an international language. But what we have done, I suppose, in the program, we've been... I suppose, quite futuristic in how we have approached, how we source that unique talent. 
So some of the things we've done, for example, is we introduced video applications, gosh, over 10 years ago now, actually. And that's become, why did we do it at the time? We did it so that we could actually help those applying for the program to really showcase their personality and their strengths and why they felt that they were the best person to be the next brand ambassador and the next face of the Jemison brand in an international market. So video applications have been a key part of our recruitment process for quite a long time, actually. I remember the first video applications were not made in a smartphone because the smartphones we have today were not the technology that we had, you know, 10 years ago. And actually the use of video application, and I'm not talking about video interviewing here because that's different. That can be a pre-recorded set of questions that you get a link and you actually log in and you ask those questions in a timed format. Ours is a more free format, a more creative format where um, candidates, we suggest that they have two minutes to create a video uh, that tells us why they're the best fit for the role of brand ambassador. That's become even more important in a world where AI is now coming into the space of, you know, recruitment. And this year, for the first time, colleges have been asking us for a couple of years, you know, have you seen the impact of AI in your online applications? You know, what are you doing about that, et cetera? And I hadn't until this year. And this is the first time, actually, where it's so clear we do have a written application that supports the video application. And it's really clear that people who are actually using AI and ChatGPT, et cetera, to draft up their answers to those questions. So... The use of video application has become even more important today because you can't fake that. Now, what I would say very interesting about that is I say you can't fake it, but actually last year for the first time, we saw people using avatars of themselves in their videos. So, you know, AI is creeping into every aspect of life. And when we look at the multi-generational workplace, like, you know, uh, generations are increasingly being defined by their use and engagement with technology. So when we look at the recruitment space, you know, there are challenges there, but also opportunities. But just very interesting to see these things creep in, you know, to the application process. For ourselves, then the second thing we would have done is, and we were quite groundbreaking in this, a lot of companies do it now, especially around early careers, but we look at, and we have again for about 10 years, looked at a skills first approach to recruiting, which means that we don't ask graduates to have a specific degree. So I myself am a primary school teacher by trade. I work in international marketing. We have hired other teachers into the role of brand ambassador who now have very successful careers in marketing. We've hired architects, archaeologists, physiotherapists, arts graduates, psychology graduates. I have one on my team at the moment. So what we look at, yeah, is a skills first approach. Because when you're a graduate, you choose something you love to study. And I loved studying being a primary school teacher. But that doesn't mean that I have to be in that box for the rest of my life. And that's the approach that we take. If you want to create a career in marketing, we can teach you everything you need to know to actually have a successful career in marketing. And that's one of the things when we look at our employer brand and our employer EVP, our employer value proposition, we are very clear from the minute we meet students on campus that what we cannot promise you is a permanent job and a lifetime career within the company. But what we can promise you is that the time you spend with us, we will give you the absolute best foundation for your career and for yourself personally and professionally. So that's the promise that we give. And by talking to our graduates and our alumni, we very much fulfill on that promise. So we look at the video application, groundbreaking there, also groundbreaking, breaking down barriers around the skills first approach. And in a current jobs market where there is really a war for talent fiercely back on again, you kind of need to open up to be more diverse in how you recruit people, how you attract people. So that skills first approach is, you know, creeping into a lot of industries, especially around um, early talent right now. And then really we look at training. So when we look at especially Gen Z and they're the generation that we are attracting into our early careers, we use psychometrics and behavioral assessments to make sure that we are hiring the right people, matching them to the right markets, because like I said, the markets are very different and the skills that we need across those markets at different stages of development are very different. 
So we use behavioural assessments and psychometrics to make sure that we make the right decisions in terms of not the hiring, but more the matching of skill sets to markets so that people are in a place they can thrive. And a lot of the time our graduates say to us, I don't know why you put me in this market, but it really works. <laughs> and that's because there is a behavioural science behind it. We understand the markets, we understand the people, and then we match the people to the right markets. So really that behavioural science then helps us in creating a bespoke onboarding every year for our cohorts. Because, you know, in some cohorts, you might have people with a high percentage who come from a marketing and business degree, but then you might have other cohorts who come from other degrees outside of business and marketing, and they may need in their induction a very strong foundation. Well, what is marketing? What is expected of me as a marketeer? What do I do as a marketeer? So yeah, that's another way that we make sure we're connecting with this generation. And this generation want to work for employers who'll invest in their learning. And by us showing that we do, then that helps us attract the right talent. And I suppose the last thing really in attracting the Gen Z talent is career advancement. So, you know, Gen Z clearly say, um, we do research every year to make sure we understand the cohort that we're actually trying to attract. And this year when we did the research, you know, we found that four out of 10 in terms of career advancement, four in 10, 21 to 28 year olds, an important factor for them is understanding how can I actually progress within this company? And they will make decisions on what company they want to accept rules from because it's a very competitive jobs market out there. So companies need to be aware of this and they will make decisions based on if the company can offer them that career advancement and that training and development that they desire. So lots of things. That's a long answer, John, but hopefully there's some nuggets in there. Fantastic insight. Two things that came up there. One was you talk about the behavioural science and uh, psychometrics for markets. So I just didn't really fully understand what psychometric you might use to understand if I'm best in X market or Y market. Yeah, it's a great question. So we actually use DISC. So I'm sure you're familiar with DISC and a lot of your listeners will be familiar with DISC. So we use DISC in a specific subset of it called PPA, so personality profiling. And what we found actually uh, over the last 10 years, we're doing a little bit of research, like I said, to make sure that we are on top of trends, and that we understand the people that we are hiring. Every year we do a little bit of in-house research. And we're actually doing quite a big body of research at the moment, looking at the trends over the last 10 years and what traits of the people we hired, what were the traits that made them successful? And what we see actually is when we look at millennials, and this is no surprise, and millennials, of course, today in the workplace for context are now managers. So they are people in their late 30s, 40s, et cetera, and they're managing the new generation. So then the Gen Z. So what we found with our research was that millennials, first of all, when we look at DISC, so that's D is the dominance, I is influence, S is your steadiness, and C is your conscientiousness. So when we looked at millennials, we could see more dominance coming through. We see influence coming through in all profiles because to work at the brand ambassador, it's not office-based, it's field-based. So we're looking for people with high eye anyway um, because they like people, you know? <laughs> so high eyes always like people and like engaging with people. So what we found with millennials is there was a higher level of D or dominance. But what we're finding now as we move into the Gen Z is we're really seeing the S and the C coming up. You know, that steadiness and that conscientiousness really coming up. And that really is because of you know, the context of the world they're growing up in. They want steadiness because they have been through COVID. They now see the socio-political and economic challenges that we're going through as a society globally, not just domestically, but globally. And they want work to give them a steadiness. And for millennials, we're known as job hoppers. Actually, Gen Z are very loyal to a brand and to a company if 
they invest in them. And if they feed that need to grow uh, within within the brand, they're very, very loyal. That's very interesting. That's very interesting because that's not out there in the public domain that they're seen as these people who are job hopping. But it's almost like if they get love and loyalty, they will stay connected to the organization. Absolutely. And that's very important for employers to be aware of, especially when they're thinking of their employer brand and what aspects of that they dial up and they dial down, I suppose, you know, because you have to make decisions around what messaging you want to put out externally. But yeah, it's very important to understand that millennials and centennials are very, very different and centennials are very loyal. But that is if you invest the time in understanding them and invest the time in developing them. It brings me back to a podcast I did with Mary Collins where we were talking about multi-generational workforce and she cited emotional intelligence research in centennials and they scored lowest in three areas, independence, problem solving and stress management, which was quite interesting to understand as well. And, you know, the research was showing that people would change jobs 17 times over 50 to 60 years in this new era. But I guess there is that You know, the missing link I see is that organizations are still treating people in the same way that they've always treated them rather than adapting for this new generation. And just to pick up on a statistic that you shared there about, you know, how many jobs this new generation will have, I think sometimes that's not understood fully. That's how many jobs they'll have, not how many companies they'll work for. So they are happy to stay with the same company to do that number of jobs if that company gives them the opportunity to grow and learn, don't put them in a box. So, you know, I think sometimes people think that they're job hoppers or company hoppers even, but it's not about moving company. It's actually about moving role. They can be very loyal to a company if the company allow them to move role and to grow within the company. I want to ask you a quick question. Is your organization going through unprecedented growth, restructuring or change? At Harmonix, through our consultancy and coaching work with business and HR leaders, we face one common challenge, the overwhelming pace of change and not enough time or resources to properly reset to become future fit. If you would like to register for a free diagnostic session with one of our team of experts, go to harmonix.ie to get in touch today. Now, back to the podcast. So speaking of staying then, and when I start with you, describe the journey from day one to, you know, when I'm left out onto the field. And going back to average job tenure, you might touch on that as well. What is the average job tenure that you're seeing? Yeah, so the journey as a brand ambassador is a very exciting one. And when we look at graduates or young talent, you know, graduate programs can be an amazing start to any career because they typically have a structured development program. And that then gives you very strong foundations, then grow your career and advance your career in whichever direction you want. So for us, we branded actually our development program probably about six years ago as a result of a talk at one of the LNDIs, the Learning and Development Ireland conference that happens annually. There was a talk about branding your development program. And so there's always nuggets, isn't there, from conferences like that. And that was the nugget we took away that year. And we went away and we asked our brand ambassadors, what would they call our development program? And they came up with the title, Distill Your Own Success, because, of course, whiskey is all about distilling. And we wanted to make sure the title was one that was gave clarity to our uh, brand ambassadors, our graduates, that they had control of their career. So while we can give them the tools, you know, to be successful, ultimately they're in control. So Distill Your Own Success really gives that message quite succinctly. So what is it? Well, it's basically three things. It encompasses onboarding, 
ongoing learning and then offboarding. And a big part of our program that we introduced probably five years ago is the offboarding element, which I'll talk about in a second. But let's go to the first pillar, which is the onboarding. So onboarding is uh, three to four weeks in Ireland before they then get on a plane and go off to their markets. So that onboarding is the design of it. There's some elements that are standard every year. So getting to know our company, getting to know our people, connecting with our people, getting to know our leaders in our business, managers in our business, peers within our business, getting to know our ways of working, getting to know our strategy is really important. And then because they're brand ambassadors for a brand like Jemison, getting to know our product. So they become little whiskey wizards. So they don't need to know anything about whiskey or the industry when they join us. We give them all that training and we make sure that they spend time in the Irish Whiskey Academy in Middleton with our team down there and they learn everything they need to know about whiskey and that of course continues throughout their career. So induction then, the bespoke elements of it um, in addition to that are really around like I said the cohort and behavioural assessments and how that's driven. So you know a couple of years ago we did some work with uh, Deirdre McGinn from Step Up Step In around how you show up because that year it was all people who were still online. People just didn't know how to show up online. They didn't know how to find their voice online. So that year, that was a big part of the training that we did. And it wasn't just, you know, a one shot at induction. We then had follow up sessions around that. Um, so when they go to market, then they have ongoing learning. We call that element staying connected because it's really important that we stay connected with our global community. Whether you have a domestic community of early talent or a global community like we have, you know, it's very challenging to keep that community connected. But one of the big things around Gen Z is they want to feel connected and plugged into that sense of community. So we make sure that we do that through our training, through our initiative called Staying Connected. But if I go back to induction and just think about this year's cohort, a big thing that we felt or we found was that a lot of our graduates this year did not come from marketing or business backgrounds. And we had felt when that had happened previously, imposter syndrome kind of creeped in. So, and of course, at an early age, you might not have heard of imposter syndrome. You might not know what it is. You might not have that awareness. So to reduce any anxiety around feeling imposter syndrome, we actually brought in training up front and we did that in induction. And again, we've had follow-up sessions to staying connected throughout the year. So once they finish induction, then they get on their plane, they go to market, and then we focus on their first 100 days in market. So, you know, induction doesn't end and then that's it. Okay, now you're on board. For young talent, they need at least support in that first 100 days. So what does that mean? It means when they get to market, they're going to have a manager there. So there's at least a one week period where they spend time with their manager. Also, they'll have a handover with the graduate who did the role before them. Um, and that's really important to settle them into the role, etc. And I suppose when I think of onboarding and I think of any generation, it really is one of the things, research tells us, it's one of the things that leads to long-term retention. So if you don't have a robust onboarding programme, it will lead to motivational issues and it will lead to then ultimately retention issues. And that is, I think, um, Aon and HPC did a report in early careers. It was published uh, late last year. And the findings were that employers cited their number one challenge was retention. And actually retention begins with onboarding. If you want to retain talent, you must onboard them in the right way. So that's why we invest so much anyways in our onboarding, because it sets people up for success. But I think sometimes when people progress in their career, and I know we're talking about early talent here today, but when people progress in their career, they still need that onboarding element. And I'll give you an example of what I practically did recently. I had somebody who's five years out of college who joined my team last year. And in that first month, we're working in a hybrid context. In Irish distillers, we have to work uh, two days uh, from the office uh, and we can work three days from home or whatever balance we want for ourselves. So when I had that new person join my team, 
I actually, for the first month, I spent as many days in the office as I could. And I booked a table beside her so that we were sitting beside each other. Um, And in that first month, we really got to know each other. And we really established our ways of working with each other. Now, I know that's not always possible in international context, but I'd highly recommend for anyone listening who has new people on their team at any stage in their career, that they are in, in the hybrid working context, that they actually invest, especially in those first 100 days, that first month, time in getting to know people and getting to know their super strengths and getting to know how they work best. And of course, in a turn, those new people can get to know you as their manager and know how to manage you <laughs> as a manager as well. So anyways, that's just a little, a little tip on induction for anybody. Then we move on to ongoing learning. Um, every six weeks, we have a learning initiative. We do pulse surveys with our brand ambassadors to see what they want. If it's internal strategy, internal people present. If it's something external, like how to be more productive in your workday, then we bring in external partners, external speakers. And then we have um, Connect sessions um, throughout the year as well as part of staying connected. We also have a mentoring program. It's peer mentoring program. And we then move into our third pillar, which is offboarding. So what we found a pain point for our brand ambassadors or our graduates when I started in the job was that they'd invested two or three years of their lives in building the Jemison brand internationally. And then for some of them, there wasn't a permanent job after the program because, you know, there isn't always going to be permanent jobs for everybody in any sector after a graduate program. So what we did was we upfront our, in our messaging, we said that we cannot guarantee permanent job, but we can guarantee a very strong foundation for you to build the rest of your career on, be that internally with us or externally in the marketplace. So that messaging has been really important for us in shaping perceptions of people coming in the door. So they know, look, I'm going to get the best foundation here. I am going to thrive personally and professionally in this environment. And then it's up to me to distill my own success and decide what I want to do next. You know, so the offboarding program was the second element of that. So messaging was first and then a practical implementation of an initiative. And that was our offboarding program. We call that your future. And that's actually a six month offboarding program where we actually, because the brand ambassadors are coming to a very definite end, the contract's going to end at the end of August. So we start then bringing them on that journey to help them understand, okay, well, reflect on your time with the program, put into words, get the vocabulary of what you've learned. How does that translate into a CV, into a cover letter, into examples you can draw from in an interview for your next role? And that's been a huge success for our program. So here are the three elements, onboarding, ongoing learning, and offboarding. My God, Sinead, I'm buzzing listening to you here. <laughs> You're on fire. <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking if I was 22 years of age again, where <laughs> I'd be trying to get a job. Um, fantastic support. Talk me through the journey of people managers then who are receiving these people. And you mentioned yourself, you know, sitting with somebody as much as you could in the first 100 days. But have you any support for them and how they link and grow these people? Yeah, Scott, it's another great question. and. You know, I was saying earlier that our cohort are predominantly, that the graduates are predominantly Gen Z and predominantly their managers are millennials. Okay. And even on my team, I have a millennial and I have a Gen Z and they go on really, really well. But we, when we were doing the research about the last 10 years and snapshot of how behaviors had changed over those 10 years, they literally sat beside each other and our Gen Z <laughs> said to the millennial, you know, we're exactly the same. And then I was like, no, no, we're not, actually. <laughs> and it was like this moment where socially they were the same. But bring it back to work. And actually, no, 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 we're, we're not the same. Our work ethic isn't the same. <laughs> um, so, you know, 
managers can get very frustrated. Managers of early talent, to be specific, can get very frustrated with this new generation. Firstly, because they think they're the same as them. So their expectation of them is the same as what they expect from themselves. And that's always the same for any generation. There's always going to be a little bit of head bluffing. And every generation thinks the next generation is like them until they find out they're not, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, the millennials are a bit surprised as managers that Gen Z don't have the same work ethic as them. They don't have the same standards of work, unfortunately, as them. Why? Because they have had a different experience of the world of work. The hybrid working context that we find ourselves in, the workplace revolution as opposed to evolution, I think we all talked about it being an evolution, but it's absolutely a revolution that's happening at the moment, means that the new generation are not learning by osmosis as we kind of did, you know, when, when we were in the workplace. So how managers manage them, therefore, has to change. And like I said, for me, I understand that because I have a keen interest in the generational space. And I was looking to preparing the workplace and our program for the next generation. But it, as a manager, I suppose, I, I find time is really important with these young professionals. And I think I heard someone say recently, you know, the key isn't about spending time. It's about investing time, you know, and that's very different as a manager to spend time or to invest time. So I'll give an example of that. As I said earlier, when I had the new person join my team last year, I didn't just spend time with them. I invested in being in the office more often, in making sure um, that we sat beside each other in office because we don't have assigned or designated desks in the office because of hybrid working, like most organizations. So I didn't just spend time with her. I invested time in her. And by doing that, it meant, I hope, and from feedback from her, uh, that she got up and running quicker, that I understood her quicker, that she understood me and our ways of working quicker. And actually that has led to a more seamless relationship. But as managers, we need to invest that time. And of course, as managers, we're very used to doing like, you know, your performance, your one-to-ones. But really for this new generation, informal check-ins are super important. Those little coffee conversations, in the moment feedback, in the moment mentoring, in the moment coaching, so important, especially in a hybrid workplace. So capturing that learning moment and actually calling it out as soon as you can so that it's a good learning opportunity. But then the key is also following up on that. So what we talked about last week, you know, have you implemented that? Did you find it useful? What are you doing differently? That follow-up is really, really key as a manager. And it sounds like I'm asking managers to invest a lot of time here. It actually isn't. It just becomes a natural way of working for you as a manager once you get into the groove. And then I suppose as managers, every generation has superpowers. And Gen Z, they're digital natives. And I work in marketing. And you want digital natives on your team to build your brand. So, but there's lots of different superpowers that those digital natives can have. I have a graduate on my team at the moment, and she's amazing at content and creating content. So she's driving our social channels. She's creating the content, editing the content, creating the copy for the content, and driving that engagement with her own generation. And that's really, really important. So as managers, if you invest the time, you get to know their superpowers. You get to build a way of working that creates then a more seamless relationship with the next generation. So I hope that answers the question for you. Yeah. And it just strikes me, uh, we were asked to help an organization around career conversations and helping their managers to have better career conversations with their people. You know, they had trained a lot of their managers as coaches, but it wasn't being applied in the workplace. So I think that there is a lot of stuff that 
can be done in the moment, short coffee conversations, using coaching skills that could actually drive performance if people invested the time. I think that's a brilliant comparison between spending time and investing time. I'll be using that one. I'll be stealing that one, Sinead. So have your managers been trained as coaches or, you know, how do you get them to invest that time? Yeah. So from a personal perspective, when I became a manager, that was my on switch for actually studying to be an executive coach because I didn't want to be a manager. I wanted to be a coach. So for me, I very much believe in that. Okay. So in Irish Distillers, we have a very robust training system for people managers. But actually, you know, within that, what we're finding is, do we need a specific strain then or a specific strand or learning pathway for those who actually manage early talent? Because there is a little bit of a, a nuance to it. So, of course, as a people manager, there are certain skills that you need to learn. But definitely, there is a little bit of a nuance when you're actually managing early talent. So that's something uh, that we're considering. Also, when these brand ambassadors then leave Irish distillers to go to Perna Recar affiliates, because Irish distillers is, is part of uh, Perna Recar. Then we also have a way of working agreement that we have with those markets because we're very conscious that when they go out to these markets and they work in Spain or Thailand or India, they're going to work with managers in those markets that maybe have never managed people before, that uh, maybe have managed people, but it has not been early talent. And maybe they have managed people and maybe it's been early talent, but it hasn't been a role of a brand ambassador, which is not office based nine to five sitting beside them. I mean, no role is anymore, but... So yeah, we have a way of working agreement. So I, when I was talking to you before, I mentioned to you, we kind of refer to it as, or maybe I just refer to it as, you know, what to expect when you're expecting a graduate. <laughs> because there are certain ways of working that you need to be conscious of. And yeah, we outline it all in a way of working agreement. Fantastic. So we've taken quite a bit of time on this. And maybe one more question then around college and school and how it's preparing these people for the future of work. Any advice or have you been involved in linking in with colleges and schools in how people are being prepared for the future of work? Absolutely. And I suppose my experience is more from a third level perspective and um, so higher education perspective. And, you know, what you have is a very passionate community uh, in colleges. We talk about the changing world of work, but I mean, there's the changing world of education that happens first because these generations hit colleges before they hit the workplace, you know? So colleges always need to be ahead of the trend. And um, they're, we're, if we look at Generation Alpha, the new generation, you know, they're about 14 at the moment. The, the eldest of the new generation are, are 14 and they'll be hitting the workplaces at earlier by 2030. But they're going to be hitting colleges uh, in the next four years. So colleges need to be thinking, OK, how am I engaging with Gen Z today? And that roadmap for learning is very different to how they engage with millennials. But actually, they have to be proactively planning for, well, how are we going to engage with Generation Alpha? The guys who are like, like I have a one-year-old niece and she literally takes my phone and swipes at one and pinches the screen to make things bigger and smaller. Like we're talking about people here who are going to lead in a 100% digital driven world, you know, and a virtual world, etc. So in a world that I'm not sure I even understand, you know, um, but basically if we go back to the colleges, they have a challenge. You know, we're challenged in the world of work. They're challenged before us because that generation's hitting them sooner. And they are, from my experience, I work a lot with the colleges, with the careers advisors, with um, student societies and with lecturers. And they're very passionate about making sure that they are creating an environment where their students are ready for the world of work and that they can have a seamless transition between college and into the corporate world. Okay. 
but there's a lot of challenges there. And I think traditionally employers think, you know, for me to connect with colleges, okay, it's internships, it's work placements, it's summer placements, et cetera. But in Irish distillers, we, for our marketing function, we don't have the opportunity or the ability to have internships. We're a small team. So we look at other ways that we can engage with colleges. And this is what colleges need and they want is for employers to actively engage with them and help them. I think they call it pre-skilling. So pre-skill students for the world of work. So how do we do it if we don't offer internships? Just because we don't offer internship doesn't mean that we sit back and we do nothing. I really believe employers have a key role to play in the education of students if we want them to have the skills for the world of work that we're looking to attract them into. So what do we do? We do a lot of work on um, guest lectures. We do a lot of workshops on campus. Next week, uh, my team are doing one in UCD as part of their accredited module on skills uh, for working life. And the workshop is on self-awareness and motivation. And we've done workshops before on how to be an effective team player, on building your personal brand, um, so that you are ready for attractive for an employer to employ. So we do work like that. We have done live projects with lecturers in classes and modules before where we've given them a case study and then they've worked through a semester on that project. And we then go on campus intermittently throughout the year to give feedback and then they present to us uh, their solutions uh, at the end. So look, colleges are very open to employers partnering with them. I believe it's an employer's job to help in the pre-skilling of candidates if we want them to have certain skill sets moving into our businesses. And there are lots of ways you can do that proactively as an employer outside of the traditional internships and workplace. We'll wrap it there. And I have a couple of topic questions that I normally ask at the end, Sinead, because we could go on forever. A book you'd most recommend? A book I'd most recommend. So I had the pleasure of meeting Professor Amy Edmondson, a professor in, uh, from Harvard uh, Business School. And she's known for her work in her research in psychological safety. And of course, that's a key topic when you think of generations, and especially Gen Y or Gen Z, should I say, sorry, centennials. They're looking for that psychological safety, as we all are at work, let's face it. Um, she, her first book on the fearless organisation is one that I read. But actually, when I got to meet her, she was presenting at the Learning and Development Ireland LNDI conference for Christmas. And I met her at the reception the night before. And we all got a copy of her book and we all had the opportunity to meet her and get it signed. And her new book, um, Right Kind of Wrong, Why Learning to Fail Can Teach Us to Thrive, is a book I'm reading at the, the moment. And what I loved about meeting Amy, she's a very inspiring lady. She, we all got to get the book signed and she signed it, Sinead, Fail Well. And I honestly even get goosebumps now thinking of, of that. And it was so inspiring, those two words, Fail Well. And, you know, when we talk about, I think one of your previous speakers, was it uh, maybe Siobhan from Musgraves, talked about one of the things we need to allow this new generation to do is to fail. Um, and I'm really enjoying that book by uh, Amy Edmondson. Actually, the week after I met her, um, she then won the Financial Times uh, Business Book of the Year for that book. So, yeah. That's right. I heard her speak at that conference and uh, she was fantastic. And I was only listening to another podcast and uh, it came up there about failing. And the point was made, what's great about failure is that you survived it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that you're, you're moving on again. So. Uh, however low you might go uh, in your life. So another nice nugget to take from the session. Best advice you were ever given in your life? So look, we started our conversation uh, with me saying I, I've been really, really fortunate to have had really good, you know, teachers, managers, mentors, coaches uh, throughout my life. I suppose there's lots of advice I've gotten over the years, but was for me, my current manager, um, Simon Fay, who's an alumni of our programme himself, 
he always says when he talks to our brand ambassadors, performance equals credibility equals influence. And I think when I, when I heard it first, I was like, okay, let me digest that. But, you know, it's absolutely brilliant because especially millennials, they thought I can just go in and I can be CEO tomorrow. I mean, that was the perception that, that we had of millennials. You know, they're very ambitious people. Millennials, brilliant, by the way. <laughs> so it's very important as our performance. You know, you have to do the hard work. You have to put in the time. You have to show people what you can do before then it leads to credibility. And you have to build that trust as well as part of that performance. Then that leads to credibility. And then that leads to influence. And that, of course, helps in building your career. And one other piece of advice, I suppose, or one other person maybe that inspired me was Frank Brock. I don't know if you ever knew Frank, but Frank uh, was director of People De- Harvest, which is a people development consultancy, and worked with Nicola, Nicola O'Neill um, there. And Frank, I'm sure you know, is a master coach. And I, um, I entered an award, the Pierce Walsh Award um, for Innovation, Learning and Development, uh, got a long time ago. And Frank was a judge. And we won the award that year. And as a result of that, I got to be a judge the following year. So I got to spend a lot of time with Frank. And I feel very blessed that I actually got to spend time with him. Frank passed away during COVID. But I feel very privileged to have gotten his time and his wisdom. And when I think of the current generation and what we talked about earlier about standards and millennials not understanding the centennials' work standards are different and why they're different and their experience of world of work, Frank said, you know, behaviours drive standards and standards drive high performance. And when I think of the current generation and I think of the behaviours they're displaying and I think of who they're looking to for role models and then how that actually will impact their performance for the long term, I do say I kind of worry. <laughs> I kind of worry. You know, I'm not sure the standards that they're setting are the right standards to lead into high performance in the future. I'm not dissing the generation anyway. It's not their fault in some cases, you know, it's just they've come into a world of work which is very challenging. But sometimes as a young professional, you need to think about who your role model is. And then your role model helps you set the standards. And then those standards drive performance. So Frank's words are ring very true for me in terms of this this cohort that behaviours drive standards and standards drive high performance. And um, yeah, it's something that we need to be very conscious of as organisations in supporting this new generation so that we can have high performing teams and high performing organisations. Just to mention on Frank, um, I remember going into a, a sales call and we were pitching against each other for a piece of work. And, you know, you'd see some competitors and they'd look the other way. And Frank and myself had a great chat. And, you know, it was that all, I suppose, standards and behaviours in which he conducted himself. It wasn't just something that he spoke about. He, he lived and breathed those. And uh, RIP Frank, what a legend. What a legend. And I have to say, what I really appreciate and learned from Frank was how he was so generous with his time. And I think that's what we all need to be conscious of in this kind of hybrid world of work is our time. And like we said, how we invest that in our people. Yeah. And it was that time to stop and get to know each other. And uh, that's important. And lastly, then, if you're to name one person who motivates and inspires you, who would that be and why? I think we've covered it. I mean, I'm very inspired by my current manager, Simon Fay. He cares a lot about people and I care a lot about people. And he cares a lot about helping people uh, to be the best they can be. And that aligns with my values as well. And of course, we just talked about Frank. No bigger inspiration than Frank. Well, fantastic. We covered an awful lot. Uh, 
you have a foundation as a teacher and you also said that you were a storyteller and uh, you really crafted those messages in very, very well in anything we covered. So I'm sure a lot of people will get a lot of insight into the whole world of early careers from our conversation. So really appreciate the conversation, Sinead, and thank you so much. Lovely chatting with you, John. Thanks for listening to The Core today. We would really appreciate if you could follow, subscribe and share as we seek to grow our community of listeners. Speak again soon.